Welcome to Now We Listen, a podcast celebrating traditionally underrepresented performers, scholars, and research topics in early music and historically informed performance. I'm Thomas Carroll. Now We Listen is curated and produced by members of EMA's IDEA Task Force. It is the only early music podcast written and hosted by diverse individuals in the historically informed performance community. One further aim of the podcast is to highlight performances or texts that seek to deconstruct cultural and personal biases within a wide range of communities. Keyboardist Byron Schenkman centers the conversation in this episode around the pitfalls of overlooking historically anti-Semitic and discriminatory texts and composers of the canonized previous centuries when programming in the 21st century. As a starting point, we'll also discuss Professor Jeffrey Sposato's book, The Price of Assimilation, Felix Mendelssohn and the 19th Century Anti-Semitic Tradition. Byron, welcome. Thank you. I really appreciate you having me. Yeah, I'm really excited for this interview. I think it's going to be very productive and, and, and yield a lot of fruitful results. Just to begin with, for those who, who don't know you, could you give us a brief history of your musical background? Well, I grew up in a family with lots of musicians. Certain kinds of classical music were considered desirable professions among children and grandchildren of Eastern European Jewish immigrants in this country. And we had lots of them in my family. And I grew up studying piano and then became interested in early music at an early age. and. In my freshman year at NEC, I switched my major to harpsichord, got my master's degree in harpsichord, but continued also studying piano intermittently along the way. And now I run a chamber music series, Byron Schenkman and Friends, which is half with harpsichord, half with piano, and a, a variety of repertoire. Do you have a specific LP or record that sort of changed your life, you know, the aha moment that that pushed you into the direction of early music at such a young age? Oh, my goodness. You know, actually, I was thinking of live performances. I heard Waverly Consort do Le Roman de Fauvel, and that was one thing that took my world. Once I got interested in early music, I requested the box set of records and a book called Instruments of the Middle Ages and Renaissance by David Monroe. So I would say David Monroe was an inspiration to me. Yeah, David Monroe, those video clips on YouTube from the old series that was broadcast on BBC are, are still some of my favorite things to, to watch. Yeah, I still think he's one of the best early music performers that there's ever been. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and just such a thirst for knowledge and for sharing that kind of information with the world and just such, such a natural curiosity and excitement about it. And some showmanship, you know, yeah. making it accessible to to an audience in our time. Or, well, that was 50 yeah. years ago, but in, in that time. You had uh, mentioned um, your Seattle concert series, Byron Chakeman and Friends. It is well known in the early music world uh, for being one of the most innovative and inclusive concert series in early music, both in terms of programming and in terms of your invited list of collaborators. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the founding of the series and how you go about programming for such a varied season each year? Sure. I love chamber music. I love together different combinations of people and seeing how different groups of people interact with one another and what each person brings to the picture. And I've become more and more aware over the last few years how 
unconsciously we have really centered certain voices and obliterated other voices. And I'm trying to, to remedy that, trying to make amends for that and, and get a richer, more, more realistic mix of, of ideas and personalities and approaches. I think especially in a, in a city like Seattle, where there's such a mixture of, of diversity in terms of audience members and different communities just in the, the greater Seattle area, it sounds like the perfect combination. Well, yes. And the audience for early music and for chamber music in Seattle is still pretty homogenous. I think it, it has been a it has been a sort of an exclusive club with a lot of gatekeeping. And, uh, you know, I'm just learning about ways that um, it's not enough for us to try to be inclusive. We have to, we have to really examine what a lot of our basic premises are and our, our ways of putting together a concert series of our ways of publicizing it or our ways of selling tickets to it, because the people who come to our concerts are the people who already know what we do and how we do it and how it works and how you, what the etiquette is and when you're supposed to clap and when you're not supposed to clap and what you're supposed to wear. And there's so many unwritten things that I know even, you know, friends of mine who are just a little bit on the periphery and haven't grown up in this world um, have told me that they feel uncomfortable sitting there because they feel like they're not wearing the right thing or that everybody else knows what they're supposed to do and they don't. So I think we have a lot of work to do. Yeah, there is definitely a very uh, 19th century tradition at play still. I, I am must say, I am very glad to see groups slowly start moving away from tails and white tie as the, the typical orchestra concert dress. Um, I think, you know, giving performers options or tailoring the, the dress code to, to more fit the music, even if it's just all black rather than tails, already goes a long way in breaking down that barrier between the performer and the audience. At least uh, in Boston, I've noticed that when groups have started to move away from that, there's been a younger crowd that has started to come to performances. Maybe people that didn't necessarily grow up thinking that classical music was something that they would want to go see on a Friday night. Yeah, the dress code is an interesting issue because it also impacts, it impacts the performers because the dress code is based on certain body types and certain gender stereotypes. Yes. So for people who don't fit into those so-called norms, it can put some people at more of an advantage and others in a disadvantage. Even the practice of, of performing standing up is great for certain kinds of people and it's not possible for certain kinds of people. And it's and then there are people for whom it's possible, but it makes it harder for them to do their job. Yeah. One of the things that I've really enjoyed about your online broadcasts of, of past performances and then the, the current season of Byron Shankman and Friends is the wide range of diversity in performers, but also in terms of repertoire, even commissions from, from composers. And we'll hear one of those later on in the program. When we consider the variety of options available to us in the repertoire, there's certainly no doubt that some works or some texts definitely carry some inherent 
problematic issues that I think maybe need to be unpacked in the 21st century and, of course, should probably have been more openly discussed in the past. In our own world of the early music movement, of course, the, the Bach St. John Passion comes to mind as one of the more inflammatory and anti-Semitic texts to be set. And yet it's still performed every year, often without the context of explaining why these texts are that way and what that reflected in terms of the time period in which the, the work was composed. How do we deal with that in the 21st century? <laughs> the St. John Passion is such a, it's such an issue for me because every time I'm looking on Facebook or something and I see another performance of St. John Passion going on, and usually they're around Holy Week, which is around Passover, which is around the time that historically the most anti-Jewish violence has happened throughout history. It just makes me cringe. And it makes me cringe not only for the anti-Semitism, but for the perpetuating the idea of what I think of as basically white supremacist culture. The idea that the best music that there is, is that J.S. Bach is the best composer who ever lived. Therefore, that's the greatest music that there ever was. Therefore, the greatest music there ever was is music by a white Protestant German cisgender heterosexual man in the early 18th century. You know, that's the pinnacle. It's nothing ever is going to be probably as good, let alone better than that. And that that's what we need to keep playing over and over and over. And I'm not calling for canceling it. I'm not saying, you know, smash, smash the sculptures and throw out the scores and destroy all recordings. I'm saying we've got plenty of recordings. We've got plenty of that. And maybe once in a while, somebody will have a new a new take on it that would really be worth hearing, you know, maybe every 10 or 20 years, maybe, but not that every, every Baroque orchestra in North America needs to every year do their St. John Passion for the year, when they could be doing, I don't know, an oratorio by Camilla de Rossi, for example, something that isn't done all the time, you know, let some other voices be heard. If you want to do, I'm, I'm all wound up about this, I realize. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to do the St. John Passion, think about a different way to do it. How about commissioning an amazing poet to create new texts for the St. John Passion? That would be an amazing, an amazing project. It would be a huge challenge because obviously Bach works really closely with the words, but that's great. If you want to do something great, do something great. Don't just keep on recycling the same old thing. I think especially with the uh, the St. John Passion, the, the anti-Semitism in the text is just throughout the piece that the whole work kind of takes on this overtone that, that just feels very uncomfortable, especially when it's not given with any context, when it's just performed and everyone says, okay, we know what the St. John Passion is. We're going to go and sit and listen to the music. And everyone absorbs the music, but maybe they don't quite internalize the text as much because, of course, you know, it's in German. And you can read the translation, but the translation is kind of fleeting and you're mainly there to listen to the music. And it is true that the music in some way, I mean, with, with Bach especially, he, he's so dependent on the text. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it can't be reset or that things can't be changed slightly to take some of the most virulent parts of the text out. Yeah, I would, I, I'm going to be a radical here and say I would advocate not for 
softening the text, I would advocate for telling a different story because I think that the story is anti-Jewish and mm -hmm. the culture that it comes out of. You know, Bach owned two copies of Luther's book on the lies of the Jews. Yeah. That was just a given for him, you know, that yes, synagogues should be burned down. Jewish literature should be burned. Jews should be expelled from the community. You know, that, that was just a given of that culture. So I think tell a different story. And I want to clarify that I don't mean in any way to be anti-Christian in this, in what I'm saying about this. I think it would be possible to tell a deeply Christian story that doesn't have that hatred in it. I've read much of the New Testament and I've read much of what Jesus Christ was reported to have said, and none of it was hateful. None of exactly. it was about oppressing people and, you know, his messages of love and, and equality and compassion, all of those things can be beautifully told. Yeah, I mean, the overt anti-Semitism in so many composers' writings and music and texts that they chose to, to set is, of course, in, in complete contrast to what the, the New Testament uh, professes, which is acceptance and, and love. And at the same time, there's also, on the part of, of certain composers and performers, a, uh, an internalized anti-Semitism that, that composers such as, as Mendelssohn had to contend with. Jeffrey Sposato's book, The Price of Assimilation, Felix Mendelssohn and the Anti-Semitic Tradition, presents a very conflicted portrait of Mendelssohn's internalized anti-Semitism during the initial stages of his life following his, his conversion and his eventual reconciliation with his Jewish faith and heritage in the last 15 or so years of his life uh, after he was appointed in Leipzig, the former, the former home of, of J.S. Bach. It, it's certainly a much more tragic portrait of the composer than the one that we typically learn in, in music school or in music history courses. There's a lot that I can relate to in Mendelssohn's story, as it's told in this, in this text, particularly in his relationship with his father and his father being sort of the first generation of assimilated Jews who are really trying to distance, them, distance themselves from from their Jewishness, it reminded me of a vivid memory of my childhood when, you know, when I was studying piano, all my principal teachers and all of the musicians that I was taught to admire the most were Ashkenazi Jews, but we never talked about that. We didn't talk about us being Jews and them being Jews. That was something that was really taboo to talk about. And when I was 12, I won a prize in a history writing competition. And my, my essay was on the migrations of the Jews from Eastern Europe. And it happened that the award ceremony was right after my piano lesson. And it happened that at the time, in addition to a Mozart sonata, I was playing, my teacher had assigned me a set of pieces by Robert Starr called Three Israeli Sketches. And I had that book of music and underneath it, my Mozart sonatas. And when we got, when we were getting out of the car to go to the ceremony, I don't know why I wasn't leaving the music in the car, but for some reason I was carrying it. And my mother said, you better put the, you better put the Mozart on top. You don't want to look too Jewish. Interesting. And I really internalized that. And then when I began studying early music, 
all my principal teachers and all of the people I was taught to admire in early music were white and Protestant. And the, the Jewish musicians who were pioneers in the field were either ignored or more often ridiculed and derided. So I really felt like, yeah, you got to keep your Jewishness kind of quiet. And I think that's what was going on with Felix Mendelssohn under his father's influence, where I was like, okay, we're trying to assimilate here. Basically, like all the cool people are saying these terrible things about the Jews. So if you don't want them to notice the fact that you're a Jew, you need to also say these terrible things about the Jews. Yeah. Now, another layer to it, though, I was just remembering, and it's been a while since I've read it, but I read one of the biographies of Fanny Mendelssohn, the biography by Francoise Tiar. And her story, it gets even more complicated because it's issues of race, class, and gender. Because here they are trying to assimilate into this very, frankly, patriarchal white supremacist culture. And part of that culture is that women of a certain class, which they were quite upper class, are not to be professional musicians. They're not to publish music. So when Felix published works by Fanny under his name, they, they were thinking of that as doing her a, a favor. You know, they were recognizing that her music was great and they were protecting her from the potential dangers of her sticking her neck out and being an unusual woman who composes and publishes music in a society where that's not done, where if she had not been Jewish, it probably would have been okay. But with being Jewish, you know, just better to keep a low profile. Don't stick out. I was going to, to mention the same thing about Fanny Mendelssohn, that there are sort of two dimensions with Felix, and there are a whole host of other dimensions with her and her music, and just trying to get her music out into the world through any avenue possible. And if that meant having to, to publish under her brother's name as a pseudonym, then that was how it was going to have to be because of how the culture was so stacked against female musicians, against Jewish musicians, and in many ways still is. And we still downplay or even ignore the role that Fanny had, for example, in the revival of the Bach St. Matthew Passion. Yes. Yeah. You know, she, she trained Felix, she coached him, she prepared the ensemble for the performances, she led rehearsals. You know, she was doing a lot of backstage work on it, but she couldn't get any of the credit for it because that's a man's job. Yeah, now the Bach, the Bach revival that kind of started with Mendelssohn has been sort of called the beginning of the modern early music movement in some texts. That particular performance, there were, there were some changes made to the text. There were some bits that were left out. There were obviously changes in instrumentation. How much of a conscious decision do you think was made on the part of trying to reconcile the text with uh, the Mendelssohn's Jewish uh, heritage? Well, it seems from Sposato's book that there was a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and that they were trying very consciously to get with the program of what the dominant ideas of the dominant culture were at that time. And even maybe going a little bit to the, mm -hmm. to the right of it, if you will, because in that, in that way that consciously or unconsciously 
we do when we're trying to assimilate into a group, we're trying to be part of a group and we're a little bit the weird one in the group, we're more likely to put down people who are weird in the ways that we're weird than the people who have nothing, you know, nothing to lose. Yeah, and that that's exactly right. In in the St. Matthew Passion, as well as, as in Elijah, there's sort of a sense of overzealous assimilation going into how the texts are set or which which texts are, are chosen to be set, like really making an effort not to stand out or to stand out in how committed to this mass. Yeah. Um, it's exactly what my mother said to me when I was 12 years old. Don't look too Jewish. She was an adult during World War II. She knew what was happening in Nazi Germany, and she also knew what was happening in the, in the United States with institutions of higher learning that had quotas of how many Jews they would allow to teach there. She was coming from that. By the time I was growing up, I didn't see anti-Semitism as an issue. At least consciously, I didn't take seriously her fears and her concerns. In the last five years, I've gotten a bit of a shock, mm-hmm. realizing that, oh, this, this problem has not gone away. I made the conscious decision. Well, I decided in January, 2017, I decided that beginning on Inauguration Day, I would wear a kippah at all times. And my reasoning for that was that I thought, okay, anti-Semitism is on the rise. This could be a scary time. The options are try to look as not Jewish as possible or be completely out. I'm Jewish. I'm queer. Um, I'm not going to be quiet about either of those things. And, you know, what I see in history is that trying to be quiet about it didn't. No, it it never works. Didn't help. I mean, the Nazis destroyed statues of Felix Mendelssohn. Didn't matter how much Felix Mendelssohn tried to not look too Jewish. And not even that recently, but going all the way back to just a few years after Mendelssohn died when Richard Wagner published his his tract on Judaism and music. He actually says that the ones who try to act like they're Christians are the worst ones of all. You know, yeah. he, and and he he explicitly calls out Mendelssohn in that case for exactly that. Yeah, it's interesting. I was having a conversation with my dad earlier uh, this morning, and he listens to a lot of Radio Suisse Classique on online and. I had mentioned that I was going to be conducting this interview, and he asked a question that I didn't actually really know the answer to. I can sort of hazard a guess, but at what point does Mendelssohn go back to being Mendelssohn in programs and concert announcements and not have the same Christian name as well? Uh, And it seems like it, it happens at different points in different countries' histories. Yeah, and the question of whether Mendelssohn is Jewish or not is an interesting mm-hmm. one. I mean, I talked to a Jewish colleague of mine who asserted categorically that Mendelssohn was not Jewish. And it's a tricky thing about Jewishness because it's a little uh, ephemeral what it means to be Jewish. Is it, a, is it a religion? Is it a race? Is it an ethnicity? Is it, it's sort of none of those things in a way. I mean, it's it's any of those things and none of those things because you can't say it's a race because they're, well, I mean, race is a construct anyway. I mean, that's part of the problem, but mm-hmm. there are black Jews and there are white Jews. They're, they're 
North African Jews and their Eastern European Jews and their Chinese Jews. It's, you can't say it's exactly a, a race or an ethnicity, but you also can't exactly just define it as a religion because there are plenty of Jews who are atheists, which is maybe partly what makes Jews an, an easy scapegoat and easy to say that they're, they're hiding everywhere. Mm -hmm. And I suppose the only reasons for the categories, whether they're categories of gender or race or ethnicity or anything is to be able to decide who gets to do something and who doesn't get to do something. Mm -hmm. It's a it's a tool for gatekeeping. Okay. Unfortunately, gatekeeping is something we in the classical music world know a little too much about. That it still very much dominates what we know in our world of programming and auditions and invited guests in the classical music world. Well, and that goes back to that goes back to a question you asked me earlier on mm -hmm. about the programming, because. I noticed when I got kind of shaken up as many people did in 2016 and I wanted to look at, okay, what's my part in all this? What am I, what am I doing to contribute to this being our reality now? And I realized that all of the musicians I'd been hiring, almost all had been white and all of the composers had been white. And I, I was talking about it with a friend on the board who said, well, chamber music is white and that, and that was just <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, those of you listening can't see the the eyes, the eyes being the eye rolls. <laughs> yeah, I realized that the way it works in in chamber music and in early music is we hire our friends. We and we hire people who we've played with other places. So if I go play in a festival in Vancouver and I work with some people there and I get along with them. Then I'm doing a concert in Boston and they say, oh, why don't you come do this concert with me? Or I'm playing with people in Boston and we, we're getting along. So it's always friends and friends of friends. There is a limited pool of people that we're working with. When I started going outside of the pool, it was looking for the people outside of the pool who would do things exactly the way we in the pool were already doing them. And then I realized that, okay, that that gives a very, it's a very limited group of people that we can call on. So when I started to stretch, then I started to see, for one thing, I started to see how tokenism works. And that's part of tokenism. You know, find the one black musician who's going to do it exactly the way all these white people are going to do it. And don't ask them their opinions about anything. That's the other part of it. Don't, don't ask for their, their input. When I started asking colleagues outside of this little clique to, to collaborate on projects and start asking them for suggestions of repertoire or of other musicians to hire. I started finding out about all kinds of musicians and composers that I just hadn't been paying any attention to because they weren't part of my little self-referential <laughs> circle, my little echo chamber. Yeah, I think that is, in some ways, that is kind of how the, the concert promotion and, and series cycle goes. You, you play the rep that you know, you play the rep that you know you like to play, but outside of maybe 50 to 100 pieces, there isn't much else outside that bubble, and it really takes wanting to burst through it to reach stuff that you might never have thought about otherwise. And a lot of that does involve talking to people maybe outside of your circle of, of friends or your musical sphere of influence. But oftentimes I find that 
some of those conversations and those collaborations can really lead to the best musical experiences and, and totally change how you think about the repertoire and recontextualize the pieces that you're used to playing. And then I think what's really valuable is to look for the people who are looking outside of the pride and true and find out what they're doing and who they're playing with and what their what their strategies are, what their ways of working mm -hmm. are. Yeah. And, you know, even if that means playing the pieces that we all know, but in a completely different context or with completely different collaborators who put a new spin on it, I think that can be extremely valuable. Um, one of my best friends uh, lives in Germany and plays with a German period orchestra there. And they've done this project now, I think, I think twice, uh, once in Israel and this past Passion season in Germany, uh, where they take the Bach St. Matthew Passion, the original version, not the, not the Mendelssohn version, and the National Ballet Company of Israel comes and does a choreography to the music. And it takes on a much more visceral human experience when you watch the performance, because now you're seeing people reacting to the music and interacting with the music in a way that you don't necessarily get with just a recording. And the fact that it's an Israeli ballet company makes it, I think, a, quite a bit more poignant, especially with some of the text. Yeah, that's a great example of recontextualizing. You know, that's one of the things that classical music as a whole, but I think the early music movement uh, specifically is starting to, to move in a direction toward you know, as practitioners in the, the HP movement, we frequently spend time exploring, I guess, what we would call new repertoire, you know, digging stuff out of a library and performing it for the first time, um, which often leads to, to recontextualizing these more well-known works. But there is still that looming presence of the canon that sort of weighs us all down. And we think, okay, well, we've, we've got this 19th century concept this very Germanic tradition of what what constitutes important music. How do we? Yeah, and, yeah. Yeah, I want to say a few things about yeah. early music and and how <laughs> our whole culture, because it did start out as a sort of counterculture thing, at least in America. Exactly. You know, in the sixties, seventies, it was the granola and Birkenstocks, and you know, Allen Ginsberg has a line in the in Howl about people building harpsichords in their attics. Mm -hmm. It was a counterculture kind of thing. And then it, over the past 50 years, we've worked really hard, and I've participated in this, working really hard in making it mainstream, making it, making it part of the status quo. And it really strikes me now how all the work that we've gone into you know, digging up composers that hadn't been played for hundreds of years, like, you know, Schmelzer, who I think is fabulous. I, I love to play music by Schmelzer. That's great. Fine. Or, or um, a lot of the 17th century Italian composers that we play. Um, but until very recently, the assumption was that we were only looking at white male composers. And there was no, no, that was just a given. And it was always within the context of the pillars being, you know, there's Monteverdi, there's Bach, there's Beethoven, and then 
who are the people around them? And so it's always, it's always looking at the non-dominant culture people from the perspective of the dominant culture. And that was something that was really interesting to me about reading the, that Fanny Mendelssohn biography that I mentioned is that when you read about Felix Mendelssohn, you don't necessarily learn anything about Fanny Mendelssohn. But when you read about Fanny Mendelssohn, you learn a lot about Felix Mendelssohn. And same thing, if you read about Salomone Rossi, you're gonna learn about Claudio Monteverdi and, and Giulio Caccini. But if you're reading about Monteverdi or Giulio Caccini, you're not gonna learn about Salomone Rossi or Francesca Caccini. So my idea, my, my radical idea is that we, we just flip it on its end and we just say, well, what if we make the priority playing music by women and people of the global majority? And we can fit music by men in or by, by white men in as they fit into that context. And I'm getting closer to that. You know, I, I'm, I'm proud that at this point in my series, more than half of the musicians that, that I'm hiring are people of the global majority. And almost every concert has music by women and almost every concert has music by composers who are of the global majority. And some of that does involve commissioning. Some of it does involve doing things that don't fit into the earlier than thou criteria of the gatekeepers of our field. You know, sometimes you have to just say, okay, we're gonna do this a different way. We're gonna take a chance on this and let, and let the people who are out of the club start to have a say on, on what, the, what the music in the club is gonna look like. And I do think now that things have gone mainstream and we've kind of entered legit territory for, for lack of a better word, that sense of discovery is getting tamped down a bit. And I think in series such as yours, it's still very much alive and well. And I really appreciate that. I think that we would all be much better off as performers and also as musicologists and scholars if we kept trying to cultivate that that sense of wonderment or, or that sort of like childlike fascination with looking for the next new thing, um, because I think it would lead to a lot more uh, musical discoveries and a lot more satisfying performances of music that is inclusive. Yes, and I think with that, an awareness of our, our cultural prejudices, an awareness that mm -hmm. we're willing to devote intense amount of scholarship and research and experimentation and performance on let's say um, troubadour songs, which they're just sketches of monophonic melodies. Why would we not put that much that much effort and and attention and resources into spirituals, which are monophonic exactly melodies? Why not study the performance practice of spiritual, which some people are starting to do now? And that is exciting and interesting. But those don't glorify white European culture. Yeah in the way that troubadour songs do. Yeah, and I think that that is a large that is a large part of it is is still this reliance on glorifying 
that aspect of, of the musical culture uh, to, to claim legitimacy? Well, I think one question that keeps coming up for me is, should we have a canon? Do we need to have a canon or do we need to just draw on all sorts of aspects of culture, culture and history? Yeah. The problem with the, one of the problems with the canon, there are lots of problems with the canon. <laughs> one of the problems with the canon <laughs> is that once you decide something's in the canon, then you look at it as, you know, you've already, it already has the stamp of approval that this is important and you overlook any of its flaws or anything that might be clumsy about it. You know, yeah. when there's bad voice leading in J.S. Bach, we just overlook it because we know that Bach was amazing at counterpoint and knew how to do it. And it's like, okay, well, you know, don't worry about it. It's Bach, it's fine. And in the same way that when there's, when there are anti-Semitic texts in Bach, in Bach, we just overlook that because well, Bach's already in the canon. So it's a given that we have to, we have to keep that because it's in the canon. If we were able to take away that idea of a canon, there are all kinds of, different types of music that could inspire us and that could generate new work in new ways. I mean, Bach had been forgotten, right? Bach wasn't, J.S. Bach wasn't really, yeah. people weren't really paying attention to J.S. Bach in the middle of the 18th century and not really in the late 18th century. A few people, you know, sort of oddly, but some people in the 19th century, not by accident, right at the point that Germany was becoming unified as a country and that German nationalism was really important. They were looking for German superheroes and Bach was a really good German superhero. You could look at it and say, look, this is great in all these different ways. And that became the basis of a canon. Yeah, and of course that's not to say that certain composers at the end of the 18th century or beginning of the 19th century weren't aware of Bach and didn't appreciate Bach on an intellectual level, of course, um, Mozart was familiar with Bach. He was introduced and sort of cultivated a love of the, the form of fugue after getting shown a bunch of Bach manuscripts by uh, Gottfried von Swieten. And Beethoven famously owned a copy of the, the well-tempered clavier. So, you know, the, these other pillars of the canon were aware that, that Bach had a, a certain importance to them. but you're right in that this elevation of Bach to the highest level of this pedestal in the canon really didn't happen until all of this extra political stuff was going on in Germany and they needed a, mu a musical hero. And it may have, back to the Mendelssohn conversation, it may have actually been to, to the Mendelssohn's advantage that Bach was so overtly anti-Semitic because that helped that helped them assert the idea that they weren't Jews. You know, we're not Jews. We promote music by J.S. Bach, who's so obviously anti-Semitic. One of the things that you mentioned earlier in the interview is commissioning works from composers for your series. Uh, the piece that we're about to listen to was commissioned from uh, Jonathan Woody as a companion piece to the Brahms Opus 91 uh, viola songs um, that was recently featured on the series. Um, can you tell us a little bit about this composition? Yes, one of the ways that I think that we can 
bring different voices into the mix is to allow different people to respond to pieces that are from the established canon. <laughs> we'll just we'll just we'll just say. And um, the way this came about was actually um, when I first worked with Haley McAvoy, and we were talking about projects we might do together and pieces we might want to play. And we both really wanted to do the Brahms viola songs. And we were thinking about, you know, context for programming those. So later when I was thinking about uh, a work to commission from Jonathan Woody, who is my favorite kind of composer, I've realized that the composers I like the best are composers who are also performers. Mm -hmm. And Jonathan is a fabulous singer as well as a fabulous composer. So I asked Jonathan if he would consider writing a piece that would be a companion piece to the Brahms viola songs. And then he chose a text by Raquel Salas Rivera, who's a, a, a trans Puerto Rican poet. It, it really, yeah, it's been definitely a career highlight of mine, getting to work on this and getting to premiere this piece and getting to do it with Haley McAvoy, who's just a fabulous singer, and Andrew Gonzalez, who's a fabulous viola player, and having Jonathan there coaching us. And it's wonderful work. And I love the Brahms as much as I ever did. And, and I love Jonathan's piece even more. You know, that's one of the things uh, about either newly commissioned works or companion pieces from the same the same generation that it really it gives you much more uh, of a depth in terms of contextualizing the pieces that we all know and love. And it just adds a whole other dimension to them. And Brahms was looking at the past in so much of his work. I mean, Second song has essentially, you know, uses a French Noel as a chorale tune in it. Um, and Brahms was so steeped in the music of the past and was responding to music of the past and, and actually sets a German translation of a poem by I think it's Lope de Vega, a 17th century Spanish poem. So, so there's that. And then there's Jonathan's setting of this poetry by Raquel Salas Rivera, which he publishes his poetry uh, bilingually. So there's the, the Spanish and the English, and Jonathan decided to go back and forth and do some verses in English, some verses in Spanish, which works really beautifully with the music. And Jonathan also incorporates different musical styles from the past. You know, there's a part that sounds sort of like vile concert music and there's a part that sounds very neo-baroque and there are parts that sound minimalist mm -hmm. so it's 
very rich. Yeah, it's really a beautiful work. Well, thank you again. This has been a really fantastic interview. Thank you so much for joining us, Byron. It's my pleasure. Thank you for all your work. This was Now We Listen, a podcast celebrating traditionally underrepresented performers, scholars, and research topics in early music and historically informed performance. Please join us in our next episode, Confronting the Establishment, where African-American oboist and principal oboe of the Nashville Symphony, Titus Underwood, will discuss with us historically ingrained biases and prejudices when hiring and managing orchestras, which have largely grown out of a place of extreme discriminatory privilege. We will also examine Matthew Morrison's article, Race, Black Sound, and the Remaking of Musical Discourse. Thank you for joining us today. Now We Listen is a project of Early Music America's Inclusion, Diversity, Equity, and Access Task Force. Production, Karin Cuellar and Thomas Carroll. Audio design, engineering, and editing, Joanna Joy Neuschatz. <laughs>